Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For this episode, in honor of the 71st annual DGA Awards, we're bringing back our annual series devoted to our popular Meet the Nominees feature film symposium. Now in its 28th year, the event is a roundtable discussion with the directors nominated for the Guild's Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film. This year's nominees include Bradley Cooper, the director of A Star is Born, Alfonso Cuaron, the director of Roma, Peter Farrelly, the director of Green Book, Spike Lee, the director of Black Klansman, and Adam McKay, the director of Vice. Each of these talented directors were gathered on February 2nd at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles to discuss the craft of directing and the making of their films with moderator Jeremy Kagan. So please enjoy part one of our Meet the Nominees special and listen to the five nominees talk about what they do the night before a shoot and how they handle the immense pressure that comes with directing a film. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming the five nominees for Outstanding Director of a Feature Film by the Directors Guild of America. First of all, I'm honored to be with these five amazing filmmakers. And I was thinking earlier, I wonder if there's anything in common about all five films. Uh, two of your films have Alec Baldwin in it, so that's, that's one thing. Three of your films actually have a scene with shooting ranges in it, that's al also true. But um, and two of your films actually have an actor who put on a lot of weight, that's also true. But actually, of course, these individual movies are incredibly different. Um, because each of you is in a different artist expressing yourself so powerfully to all of us. And this morning I was looking at something that um, the painter Henri Matisse said, which was creativity takes courage. And what's real clear to all of us is the courage you all have in making the movies you've made for all of us. So I thank you. And this... This is an audience of your peers. This is an audience of directors and directorial team who want to know process. Now, I know you've been all asked the same questions about your films a hundred times over the last months. Hopefully, we'll be able to delve a little bit more into the directorial process as distinguished from just the standard questions, and we'll see. In fact, one of the things that occurred to me, just even watching these clips, is homework. I'm interested in what you do the night before you're about to shoot a scene. And Bradley, I'm gonna start with you since we see this scene. I don't know how many days that particular scene took, but what's your homework? What do you do? Homework or the night before? The, night the before. hope is the, yeah, I did my homework before the night before. What? Otherwise I'm screwed. <laughs> tell, us tell us both parts. Yeah. Um, and particularly the night before. Uh, the night before, I'm well, for that particular scene, uh, I think, um, it was really trying to figure out what, uh, what, what moment that I was gonna be able to capture the geography of her starting on the, all the way far away and then how are we gonna capture this sort of seduction that she does of him, really. Um, and uh, I remember Maddie and I talking about it, Maddie Lebatique, a wonderful cinematographer I got to work with. Um, but really, I think I just tried to get some sleep 
and uh, and then come. But I didn't really. It felt like there was no night before. It felt like it was just 42 days of shooting, and you just sort of take a respite in between days. Um, but it really felt like one full swath of a of a shoot. Do you do actually literally though? Do you do any homework? Like, are you going to read that scene to yourself? Are you going to look at whatever material you have, or do you actually say, I want to be on the set and make those decisions? Oh no, I made the, we made those decisions before, but at the same time, uh, always being open once I get there. I mean, that's the one thing that I learned that I hope to take to the next movie is to really uh, embrace whatever inspiration comes on the day. Uh, and if I'm in this room and I see something else, be able to pivot at an instant, and hopefully. Um, Myself and the crew are, have the you know the acumen to be able to be that uh, fluid. Do you dream about the film? Oh, all the time. And will those dreams influence what you're going to shoot? A hundred percent. Yeah, the whole his whole death was over, during a meditation. I saw the whole thing uh, because I had written uh, his death to be different, uh, but I never felt comfortable with it. And then um, I actually asked Toby Emmerich to come to my house and I showed him the rehab scene. And I said, "Listen, he can't die that the way that I've written it and scouted it and everything and boarded." Uh, he's got to die, die this way, and I took him through the whole shot for shot, and it all just came out of a meditation. I know that's odd, but yeah. I'm not sure, Peter, if you meditate, but thank you for, the, for telling us this. What is the night before? For example, this scene, um, what we just saw, yeah. I don't know how many days it took, but what's your preparation the night before? Is there? Um, I read the sides the night before, before I go to bed, but I'm, I agree with that. I, you better be prepared by the night before. You got everything in order, but... Right before I go to bed, I read my sides. They put them under my door every night. The sides, of course, being you know the pages that you're going to be shooting the next day, uh, and uh, and I just think about them and uh, you know just get my head around what we're, where we're going. And then I, again, I try to get a really good night's sleep. And by the way, I do occasionally uh, meditate. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I started about four years ago, and. Um, I used to have to drive cross country to be able to get into that kind of state where I could really have some clarity. And someone told me, well, or you can medi meditate for 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and I found it really helps. It really does. It clears all the stuff, like it, all the little things that are popping into your head. You pop them all out and all of a sudden you have some sort of clarity about the scene that you're doing. And, uh, you know, I try to do that every day. And as you're looking at that scene, for example, the one that you slipped under your pillow, the kind of thoughts that are going on in your mind now, are they, are they about shots that you're about to do? Are they about directing your actors and their performance? Are they all of this? What kind of stuff is happening as you're reading those sides? I guess I'm thinking about what could be the issues for tomorrow. What are the tricky little things? Because some of them are just two guys sitting at a table talking, and I, and I know what's going on there. But then I'm thinking, you know, we've, we've gone through, you know, the sh we've done a shot list and we've done all that stuff. But then if it's getting, a, you know, I'm thinking, how is this really going to work tomorrow, the actual shots? Where are we going to put that camera? You know, I had to, one of the issues that I had is that this car, the, a lot of this movie takes place in a car. And we were very concerned with boring the audience. You know, every time you pop in, oh, my God, we're back in this car again, you know. And so we really mapped out the car scenes quite a bit. Like, you know, Sean Porter is my DP. Unbelievable. I highly recommend him. And he did such a good job mapping it out. We mapped out every car scene. We had each all of our angles worked out so that you would have three or four car scenes before you get back to that other angle. Because be honest, there's not a lot of angles in a car, you know, <laughs> unless you want to go Orson Welles, you know, come through the ceiling or up through the floor, and that, that's not me. But um, 
so you had to, you had to, uh, uh, we had to really map it out well, and and we also had, we got, we used the Mini Alexa, and we were able to get three cameras crammed into the car. Three. Yeah, and uh, so I was thinking that kind of stuff, like you know, make sure we have those cameras in the right place. Story wise, I, I was always. I knew where we were by the night before. There's a particular shot in the sequence that we just saw where um, we see Tony and, uh, and, and he wipes and to the, after he's grabbed the guys and had the punch. And I'm curious whether that's the kind of stuff that you've thought beforehand or are you walking onto the set and working through that? How, how did that shot work? Well, you know, I, I actually uh, struggled about what to show today, what scene, because, you know, I wanted to show a scene with Mahershala in it too, but... That's two guys sitting at a t table for the most part, and I didn't think that would, you know, as a director's guild thing, you would be too impressed. <laughs> <laughs> so that was one of the most complicated movement scenes in the movie, and even though that's the very opening of the movie, uh, that was uh, something that we had to think a lot about. And also I had to avoid th things like, you know, what, what's done, been done before, like in Goodfellas, they had the Copacabana, and I, I didn't want that, you know? So we have to kind of create our own Copacabana. That is exactly how it looked, but I didn't want to do the shots that, that Scorsese's done before, and yet I wanted to feel, you know, that 1962 Copacabana feeling. So yeah, that was, uh, that's why I showed that. Got it, got it. Adam, the reason for this chair is, as Adam will explain possibly, this is actually the chair that uh, Kira Kurosawa died in. <laughs> and I, told I bought you it, it for $800,000 at auction, and it's the only chair I will sit in. No, I have a central tremor, so I get a little shaky, so I have a high back. That's all. Home totally harmless. Totally Home harmless. <laughs> Homework. A much better story about Kurosawa. Exactly. <laughs> I wish I was a liar. But, uh... Homework. What would, for example, the scene we're just seeing between uh, Bush and Cheney. What, so that, what, that was a, that was a, a, a big scene. It wasn't third act high drama, but it was a, a really difficult scene for us because you had three things that we were juggling. Number one, first and foremost, was the makeup. And this was the closest we were going to go in on the makeup. It was always the scene where we we're going to go very tight on Cheney. And I was lucky to have Greg Canham uh, as my makeup artist, who's won all kinds of awards. It is, and it is incredible. So the makeup held up. That was the big thing. I was checking with my DP, Greg Frazier. These guys are both praising their DPs. Don't hire Greg Frazier. He's terrible. <laughs> no, I can only make that joke because you guys know he's one of the best in the business. He's amazing. Super critical eye. So that was my first thing. I was like, how's the makeup? Is it holding up? We were looking through the IP. We we're like, all right, it's holding up. Second thing was wood. We had chosen this very wooden, uh, deep, rich wooden office, and we wanted it to have that, that stark relief to it. And I was always like, did we go too far? So we were checking that as well. But the trickiest thing was the fact that a lot of the lines, and we were talking about this in this scene, are from actual history. George W. Bush actually did say, I ran because I mostly wanted to be commissioner of baseball. Uh, a lot of the lines, wartime presidents are popular, were taken from the actual uh, record and actual quotes. So for me, going into a lot of these scenes, I like to improvise and play around. I have to know the areas where I can't mess around and then the areas where I can. And so there was a lot of conversation with Sam and with Christian beforehand about, here's where you've got room, here's where you don't have room. And so the thing about the burnt ends and the ribs was all uh, Sam Rockwell improv. 
that we kicked around with his assistant. And we're like, all right, I think you got room to do this. And, uh, and then Sam said burnt ends. And I was, of course, was on the floor. But, um, <laughs> but those were the three things that we were really thinking about coming into it. And the evening before whatever you're about to shoot, what do you do? Uh, the evening before is, yes, you, you go through the scene, you read through the scene a couple times. I mean, I have the advantage of having written the scene, so I've lived with it for quite a while, which helps a lot. But as far as the night before, it was, I think I checked in again with Greg Canham. I'm like, how's that makeup feeling? And uh, Greg and I, Greg Frazier and I had already talked about the way we were going to shoot it and already scouted it, so we knew all of that. And then I just read through it, especially on this movie, to see what's fact and where we can play with characters. So nothing too crazy, because like these guys were saying, you've done tremendous amounts of prep. But for this one, it was mainly the fact versus the character room that we had. Got it, got it. Thank you. Alfonso, this is quite an amazing shot. I think all of us are astounded by it. And um, are, uh, in preparation for that shot, and also the evening before you knew you were going to do that shot, what goes on in your process? Uh, well, preparation. I, my background is as a first AD. I did uh, many films as a first AD. And so I always knew that you, know, you have to be as prepared as possible just for whatever is going to happen. This film was a little bit different in the sense that uh, I would have prepared to have all the elements to allow a lot of unknown. And uh, uh, the thing is, with Guillermo del Toro and Alejandro González Iñárritu, we have this conversation with this theory of the evil killer. The evil killer is that when you, an idea for a film manifests, together with the idea, an evil killer is manifested. And you have to keep him at bay. Mm. <laughs> you know? The moment that it's manifested, it sta starts to roam around. And you start working, you start prepping, and very casually, the, the evil killer starts coming very closely to you. Mm. <laughs> the, mo the worst moments are the, the moments in which you do something great, and you feel happy about your work, and in that moment, you have the evil killer in your neck. You know. And, and is, is this the thing is that uh, what happens the night before is just looking under the bed and the closets to see where the evil kid is. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it, it's, uh, um, that's the dread of the process, you know, mm. is that uh, there's so much stuff that can go wrong. Mm -hmm. So much stuff that can go wrong that is in your hands. So, many, so much stuff is not in your hands. And those are the miracles because those stuff that is not in your hand, the evil killer becomes this amazing ballerina, you know, in which you improvise an amazing dance, you know? Uh, but it, it, what I'm talking is about outside situations that come to you and you take advantage of them. The worst are the ones in which were up to you and you didn't keep him at bay. And that is disaster, you know, in my experience. So uh, in this scene in particular, uh, we have to build a whole uh, pier that went to, from the Palapa, you know, the shade, all the way to deep into the water. We had techno crane on top. Uh, we got from the LA two amazing uh, techno operators, 
I don't know if you know Mango, is, uh, is awesome, you know? And, um, and so we did the, uh, but the problem is that we, we had to set up the, sh the crane. The pier was built and we had to set up the crane the night before, the, the tracks and stuff, the day before, two days before. And the day before there was a tropical storm. And th those are the unknowns. Those are, you know, those, you know. So, uh, and it weakened the whole, the whole structure. Uh, so, uh, th thinking about the, about the evil killer, uh, <coughs> before we have predicted a lot of stuff, you know, we had uh, uh, foremost safety. You know, we were going to have people in, in the ocean and we have kids. We had Yalitza that she didn't know, she didn't tell us that she didn't know how to swim. <laughs> but at that point, she was an actress, so she said she could swim. <laughs> and and, and uh, it, so we had all these, uh, I mean, in, in, in the shot, we have to raise a lot of the, of the lifeguards that were like uh, around the kids and stuff. And, uh, it, but what we could not predict was that thing of the, the, of the, of the structure of the pier that was, and it was very difficult to build that pier because I protected the area. So, uh, so you, you had limitations of how much you could dig into the thing. Anyway, the, the problem was that as we start shooting, the crane, because everything was off uh, of balance now, the crane kept on derailing. You know, it was one of those things in which, well, the, the, we could not get any take. Uh, I had predicted that I wanted my good take at, at one point of the afternoon right. where the light was right. But by that point, I said, well, let's have six or seven takes before that, you know? So we, we, we can use the good one. And nothing happened. You know, it kept on derailing like maybe 40 seconds into the shot. And it was not until that moment in which the rail decided to behave and, uh, and we achieved the shot. And we could not keep on shooting because we were concerned about safety, again, about the... The, uh, you know, the, the structure of the pier. And uh, we have to, to, to wrap, we could not go back because anyway, the pier didn't work anymore. And we have, every, the crew was already flying back to Mexico City. And uh, I had said before, uh, I'm going to board them, but uh, I was really depressed that night. The night after? After shooting that, because as a director, you only get one when you were expecting to have six you think is crap, you know, and you're afraid that you're watching and says, well, we have to live with it, you know? And I even watched it uh, that night and I was, uh, and I said, okay, this doesn't really work, but there's no choice. I mean, we cannot afford to stay here, build a pier again and all of that stuff. What were you finding and when you watched it that night that didn't work for you? I mean, it's directorial stupid things of, of uh, that, uh, that you, you, you create misconceptions. And those misconceptions are part of the evil killer, by the way. <laughs> uh, you know? uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and it was not until the cutting room with, with Adam that I, uh, he calls me one day. I say, yeah, I saw, I saw the shot. And, and, and I said, yes, I know. He says, no, it's amazing. And I says, I says no, Adam, it's crap. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I was started shooting and I was getting like, no, Adam, you know? And it was not really until he says, no, you, I have to show it to you, that I recognize that there was some value in the shot, you know? But, um, but yeah, what goes at night before, 
is the evil killer. <laughs> At least you identified him. He's got a name, so he's not going to totally take you over. Yeah, but sometimes you get too complacent and, you know. <laughs> I do. Yeah. In evening before, for you, what do you how do you prepare? There are two scenes here. The film, the script ends with my signature shot, the double dolly going down the hallway, and we cut to the clan and we see the ceremony. I was in Marla's Vineyard, Oaks Bluff, I'm watching CNN, it was August 10th or 11th. And I did not see uh, what happened Friday night, as David Chappelle calls the tiki, the tiki, the tiki torch motherfuckers. <laughs> and I cannot believe my eyes. So I went outside, and my house is on the golf course. I don't play golf, but I'm in Farm Neck. And Obama, I knew was there. So I could see the Secret Service guys in the trees, <laughs> trying to hide. So I knew it was coming. So I went up to him and said, you hear about what happened in Charlottesville? He said, Spike, I'm on a golf course. You know, I turned the phone off. So he hadn't heard. He hadn't heard. It's the 18th hole. So then I knew that this, what I just saw, would be the coda for the film. And, uh, but there was one thing I had to get the blessing of Susan Bro. It was her, her daughter, Heather Hare, was murdered in a homegrown act of American terrorism. And I have a great, great researcher. Her name is Judy Ailey. And so with her and my great, great editor, Barry Brown, who finally got a nomination at the cutting, do the right thing, Malcolm X, Inside Man. He's, he's really, first time he cuffed me was school days, 1988. Mm -hmm. And I saw that footage of, of uh, the President of the United States of America, I don't call him by his name, who refused to refute hatred, refused to refute neo-Nazi motherfuckers, the KKK, and alt-right. What we didn't know was that motherfucker David Duke was there. So that was the that was the prize. We did not know because the whole film, you see, told for great performers that they would do. And then the real mother shows up. <laughs> <laughs> so I called Mrs. Bro and gave her my condolences as best as I could. And I asked her, could I please? We, don't, we never see her body being hit. I wanted to use her daughter's photographs. And she's seen a couple of my films and stuff. So I trust you, Spike. So uh, I want to talk about two parts of that. 
So uh, we, we put it in, but I knew that had to be the ending because uh, all throughout the film, my writer, my co-writer, Kevin Wilma and I, we're trying to connect the past to the present. So this is just like another emphasis that this same bull is happening today. In your, in your process here, particularly, I mean, that, the double dolly shot, how did that ever evolve for you? And what do you tell, and really seriously, what do you tell your actors in terms of, for example, well, using it here? This, for this use of the double dolly shot, John David was asking me every day, when is it going to come? <laughs> That's the, he said, we have a double dolly shot? And uh, so I didn't tell him we were going to do it, but he, he was on the set, so he saw we were building this long hallway, so he knew what it was. My Ernest Dickerson, very important in my development as a filmmaker, he went to Howard, I went to Morehouse, both historically black schools. We came into NYU, graduate film school, the fall of 1979. Ang Lee was in our class too. Our class was mother. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And uh, a Mo Better Blues, I did it. And we were just still in our film school geek phase. And finally, Ernest Knight said, look, if we're going to use this shot, we just can't be using it. It has to be a, a purpose. So the first time we did that with this was in Malcolm X. Denzel was on the double dolly shot. And the song, the great Sam Cooke song, A Change Is Gonna Come. How do you set the shot up? How is it set? You put a, the camera on the dolly yep. and you move. Oh, where's the actor? <laughs> where's the actor? Sitting on an apple box. But... The reason why I chose to use a double dolly shot there is because in the late great Dr. Betty Shabazz, Malcolm's ex's widow, told me that she thought that her husband knew he was going to be assassinated that day at the Audubon Ballroom in Harlem and that he wanted to become a martyr. So when she told me that, I knew then that's where I had to use the, the double dolly shot. Uh, we did it, another time was good time. It was in the 25th hour. My brother, late Philip Seymour Hoffman, has just kissed his student in the club. And like he know he f <laughs> So then we have another. Did you know you were going to use that shot? Because you just said John David found out. Well, now there's a whole. Oh, you had to go there. And you knew, but did you know in the process of your thinking, oh, this is going yeah. to be my ending? This is before you got the documentary. Yes, because <laughs> this shot's going to take us out through the window to a, a, a cross burning. The, the issue of, of Dutch angles, which you use, uh, cross burning. Uh, we in don't other use place. that term Dutch. What are Chinese you? angles, we don't do that. What are we calling him? <laughs> <laughs> There's certain terminology you can't use on a set today. And Dutch and Chinese and call, uh, get the run DMC, you know, we don't, uh-uh. So how are you describing it to your people? To working with? Tilted. <laughs> <laughs> 
And your choice of doing it. <laughs> your choice of doing it. Yes. What, when did that enter your process? Of, I'm gonna, particularly with the, the scenes with uh, David Duke. Those, those. It's off kilter. We did that and do the right thing too. I mean, that's not, that's, I, know. I mean, I invent that. That's, that's standard. You know? But the so, reason to choose it, that's what I'm looking at. You have the inter, in this, this interaction between the Grand Wizard, who thinks he's talking to a fellow... Clanner. Clan brother. And, but we use a lot of stuff. I mean, this film, we wanted to look like a lot of the great films of the 70s I watched growing up. Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, stuff like that. So we had the, you know, the split screens and stuff like that. So we wanted to evoke the, uh, that era. That's why we shot it on film. 35 millimeter, great young DP, his name is Chaz Irwin, and we said we're gonna shoot this a film digital. But this is too, it's too clean for me, for, especially for a period piece. So we wanted to have that grit. And uh, that's and for, what we did. And for you, the night before you're going to shoot a scene, what happens with you? Sleep. <laughs> any reference? Any preparation? You got to do, I mean, everybody, I think everybody said here already, you got that preparation's done. I mean, like, you think that the hated Patriots and Rams are preparing? I mean, they've done all. <laughs> 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 Boston, New York, don't get along. <laughs> Preparation's done. You got to play the game. Yep. And also, issue: Do you dream? And if you dream about the film, does it happen? And does it change what you might do? Or is that not where you are? I'm dreaming about, uh, you know, what? What? I mean, first of all, I know what's the weather going to be like tomorrow. Key. Or oh, you have to go to the cover set. Yeah. You, know, you know, so that's, it's so much stuff is just like, not have to even do with the filmmaking, just the, the getting stuff done. Got it. Got it. I was going to ask all of you a question about a little later, but I'm going to ask it right now. What do you do when you're anxious? What do you do when you feel the pressure? How do you handle it? In work yep. or in life? Both. <laughs> <laughs> I know I generalized it too much. We'll, we'll c concentrate on the direct on the process. Work. When you feel the pressure or anxiety, what do you do? How do you handle handle? Yeah, it, 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 the minute you said that, I thought initially of uh, that scene that I showed you uh, to this morning, which was pretty intense. You know, we had a lot of people. We had one day to shoot it, and we had a lot to shoot that day. Um, and I remember there were a couple moments. As an actor, I've been in the hole. I call it like the hole, right? You're in the hole, and you're like, oh, my. And everything just sort of comes in on you. And uh, I've been lucky to be with directors that I felt like I was in the hole with them. So we worked it out. We excavated how, you know, you, you find that in the editing room. You find that when you're writing the script. But there's something about finding yourself on the set when that happens, because there's all these other people <laughs> that the pressure is sort of amplified. Um, and uh, I remember I wanted to delay. I wanted to do a smooth shot of watching him watch her. And because of the timing, and we were running at the time that day, we, it was hard to lay down the wood in order to, to do the dolly. So I remember thinking, okay, I've, I've like another, I have a half hour. I want her, her voice is going, and I want her to sing it again. You know, all the different things, like you said, Spike, when the logistics of, uh, of, of actually getting what you want. And, uh, and also that day, 
uh, <laughs> they were talking, they, you know, money was always an issue. And I remember I kept hearing, you know, I don't know if you, you know, you get paranoid when you're directing. I hear this chatter about we're over today, we're over. And I, and I just, I remember I just got everybody together and I just said, Shelly Ziegler, first day do I love. And I just said, guys, you got to stop. Just please don't be in this room. Just please don't talk about it right here. We can't, I cannot focus. I'm trying to figure out how to, how to, how to, how to tell this story that is so vital, this moment in the movie. Because we had killed it up to then. You know, blue and red. You know, blue is Jackson. I love the blue, blue. He comes in, he's entered into this red realm. And Karen Murphy, the production designer, killed it. We, she transformed that bar, the Virgil, with all the mirrors and the thing. And Shangela and Will and we, the real deal, all these people would have a tremendous amount of energy all the performers, so there's all this energy. And I remember feeling like I was in a hole. And I just thought in that moment, I've been in holes before. And I think that, that the more holes you get into, the more of those moments that you get through and you survive and you don't die. Uh, the worst one was a play. I remember I couldn't eat. I lost 18 pounds rehearsing for this play and I thought it'll never be that bad. David O. Russell and I had some, we were in some holes on Silverlining's playbook and we made it through. And I thought, okay, I'm gonna make it through. So I guess I just kind of quiet down. I try, I talk even a little slower, you know, just, okay, can everybody just go out? And then you just try to really just center. That's the thing about Clint Eastwood, never gets in a hole ever. <laughs> Unforgiven, it snows. He goes, yeah, just shoot. Well, we'll just shoot. <laughs> it doesn't matter, the guys, yeah. That was the thing I learned in American Sniper. That guy doesn't sweat anything. Yeah. <laughs> I like that idea of slowing down. Yeah, just slow down, let's get simple. Let's just get simple. Peter, for you, do you ever feel, and when you feel, well, how do you handle it? Um, Pressure, you know, I, I have to say, you know, in life I feel more than I do on a set because I, I'm not alone on a set. That's the thing. I, I remember when I did my first movie, uh, the, some idiot friend of mine gave me the advice. He said, you know what you got to do first day? Have someone, a plant in there who says something that gets you mad. You fire him on the spot. Let him know you're boss. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Swear to God, I was like, seriously? First day I'm gonna be firing somebody in front? Why would I do that? I want them to like me. I want them to be rooting for me. We're a team. And in fact, I do the exact opposite. I start every movie on the very first day before we shot a thing and I say, hey, listen, it's a team effort. I get up right before I say, if anybody has any ideas, I mean anybody back in Transpo or you know, anyone, anybody, wherever you are, hair and makeup, anybody has an idea, Please come to me. Please tell me because I don't know it all. And we're a team and we got to do that. And they do. People come forward. And, you know, nine out of 10 times it's something I've thought of or rejected or whatever. But one out of 10 times it's like, oh, that's a great idea. That's amazing. And I stand up, I say, hey, Sally from, you know, the hair department had a great idea. It's what we're going to do. And I give her the credit and I make it a team effort. You know, that's what it should feel like. Everybody should feel like, you know, they're part of this thing. It's not just me directing a movie and them being my little, you know, slaves. It's not that way at all. So there, the pressure is thinned out for me because if I do feel, if I'm confused, I just talk, hey, what do you think? <laughs> I'll talk to the actors, I'll talk to my first AD, J.B. Rogers, who's a genius, talk to my DP, my brother, you know, wherever, there's a lot of people that I can turn to. And uh, so I don't really get, I, I honestly, I don't really get, uh, my first movie I did, Dumb and Dumber, which I was a wreck the whole time I was making it because I thought I was gonna get fired every day. Uh, but uh, since then, I just, uh, you know, I, I, don't get, I don't get that stressed out. On and me. when the time pressure happens, what happens for you? We move, we, I've never been over budget, never been over days. I, I, we're always behind the first couple weeks. You know, you're just getting the ball going. 
rolling and you're, you're falling behind. You're like a day, half day behind after f five days. And, you know, but you, we always catch up. And what I found out is it's, it's like, you know, you'll do what this movie we made for 30, in 35 days. That was the shortest shoot I ever had. I normally have about 40 to 45 and I've had 50. I thought, how are we going to do this in 35? It was a breeze. And I think if they said 25, we could have done it in 25. You do what they, you know, they, what you have, you plan it, your first AD, J.B. Rogers, again, genius. He, he just maps it out, schedules it perfectly. And in fact, we usually come in a day or two under and, uh, and you know, under budget. So we, we move, you know, we're, we're, and that, again, that's about all the preparation you did before, where you know what you're going to do, you know the performances, but... Uh, it, it, it's also a truth that when you get there that day, you think you know it all, but you don't. You know, you think, like, this always amazes me. I have people send me scripts, and they say, hey, uh, read the script. It's not really there yet, but tell me what you think. I'm thinking, really? Why would you send me a script that's not really there yet? Like, why not wait till you think it's there and can't get better? And then I'll look at it and see what's not right, you know, because I'm not going back to it again. You know, and uh, and that's how I feel like when I make a movie, I think it's 100 percent. And I think everything's per I think it's perfect, but I know it's not. But I can't see a flaw until you're shooting and then you get on the day and you realize this isn't working, this scene. And so that's where you're you're working on your feet and trying to wing it and, and finding stuff. And you have to be a creative director and come up with stuff. But, uh, uh, you know, it, it's it's just. You know, there. I, I guess I'm. Saying, I don't get that stressed uh, when we're doing it. It's. It's. Uh, but I have a good team, and and everybody's. You know, we're all on the, on the same team, and that's why I'm. I'm not one guy. You know, I have a whole team that's like blocking for me and doing everything. So you. You know, you're not out there alone. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well spent. Adam, for you, when when pressure happens, how do you handle it? Well, this this movie was very uh, unusual in the sense that we had, you know, I'd been working on the script. We went into pre-production. And then in 2016, the whole country changed. So we thought we were looking at a period of eight years in American history that were really extreme and horrifying <laughs> and dark. And then reality caught up with us while we were shooting and actually went past us in some ways. And so there was a type of anxiety on this set that I've never experienced before. And I remember the day that giant tax bill, uh, the Moab tax bill was passed, which was just a, a shotgun blast to the stomach of our country. I remember the day that was passed. And there were elements in it that were like in the scene that we were shooting, like the death tax, the estate tax. That day we were shooting that and then it was passed. And this kept happening during the movie. It happened a dozen times, 15 times that that it's kind of the opposite of what Peter was saying. The crew would come up to me and go, Adam, unitary executive theory. They're using that to do this. And I had to tell the crew, stop coming up to me <laughs> and telling me how the screwed up world is intersecting. It's stressing me out too much. So, um, uh, and as far as how I handled the stress, I would say uh, very, very poorly. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I'm one of those really bright guys who uh, kept smoking uh, uh, throughout his whole adult life. And I had a heart attack. Um, so that's true. Uh, the reason I can laugh about it is I got very, very lucky. I identified it quickly thanks to Christian Bale, 
who in shooting the scenes that we had heart attacks in, described to me all the different ways you can tell that a heart attack comes. And one of them is a queasy stomach. Second I had the queasy stomach, I went to the hospital and the doctor said, you got in here so fast, there's no damage done. You have a very strong heart. So I'm perfectly okay and I stopped smoking, thank God. Um, yes. They were fun years, those smoking years, but man, it, it was... Uh, you know, not... sometimes I like to ask the question, Does it, did the movie, a movie you made, did it ever change you? Well, clearly. <laughs> so uh, deal a little more with the pressure and the anxiety when it happens. Yeah, I mean, otherwise, I, I agree with Peter. I mean, I think the movie set is one of the most wonderful places in the world. You have, how often do you see anywhere between 40 and 100 people working in concert with each other about some idea that's floating in the air that we're not even sure of. I actually, usually when I'm finished a movie, I get a little depressed because it's such a magical experience and everyone's so great that you're working with and so talented, you're getting the best of the best and they're people you connect with. But uh, yeah, with this movie, I had a heart attack. (laughs) (laughs) One more quick, but time. When the time pressure happens, the time time doesn't bother me. Time time is never an issue. I'm I'm pretty good with that. And and same thing, you know what money you have. You know what schedule you have. We've always come in under budget. We're always on schedule. Um, you just you plan your day. I have a great AD that I've done pretty much every movie with Matt Rebenkoff, and we just plan our days. We know what they are. You have amazing actors. You have an amazing Greg Frazier is a, a freak. I mean, the guy's just a brilliant photographer who also moves fast. Seems like the best always do, right? They know what they want pretty quickly. And so, yeah, time isn't really an issue. And we play a game with hot costs. We actually treat it like it's gambling. So uh, my line producer and I, at the end of every day, we predict the hot costs. And, uh, <laughs> and we kept score throughout the entire movie, who was closest. And I almost beat him. Uh, the final score was like, I can't remember, like 28 to like 22 or something like that. So what, are, what were some of the hot costs? What's that? What were some of those hot costs? Uh, well, you know how it is. You, you go into the OT and you've got the extras and they come up to you and go, do you want to go into OT with the extras? And like, I think we have to today. And then other days you get done an hour and a half early and immediately I'm like, how are the hot costs? You know, <laughs> and also you're you're thinking about how you want to use that money in post. Mm. Uh, that's the big thing for me with hot costs. We have an, we had an amazing composer on this movie, Nicholas Bertel, who we wanted to get him a full orchestra in London. So the entire movie, I kept texting Nick, going, "I think we're going to get you that orchestra." So <laughs> you know, it's all trade off. That part of it, uh, I, and you know, after having done this for a while, doesn't bother me too much. In this case, it was this emotional thing of seeing the country become a, a pornographic clown show. Um, <laughs> By the way, did, all due respect to both political sides. I'm, I'm, wonder- <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering now, because improv is part of some of your style, whether the, uh, the puppet, I'm not going to actually use the language, but the puppet and the uh, putting on the uh, little uh, uh, you know, uh, miniature hats on the puppet, did that come from as an improv in that particular? That actually was, yes. That was, uh, there's a scene in the movie where we're showing how one of Dick Cheney's superpowers is he can make the most preposterous, radical, dangerous ideas seem professional and comforting. And there was originally the scripted line, I'm trying to remember what it was, was, oh, let's all go out onto the White House lawn, take our pants off and just run around with our uh, private parts blowing in the breeze. Uh, He used a different word, but, um, 
And then, of course, on the day, I, I had to throw out a couple more. And uh, the one I, that's in the movie was improvised. But uh, no one on the planet breaks harder than Christian Bale, which you would not think. Like, literally, when he breaks, it's, it's like out of like a 1920s comedy. Like, he spits out. He's like, Wah! And you're like, one of the most committed actors on planet Earth. Like, the guy who's so inside his character. And when he breaks, just, he just explodes in this cartoonish way. So uh, how, do you pull, how, do you, how do you pull him back so he can actually do that line? I use a microphone. I, I don't, I don't <laughs> yell in a commanding, annoying way. But I, I do kind of smooth jazz voice on my microphone. And I just say, everyone, like, keep rolling. Keep rolling. Uh, take a beat, Christian. Take a beat. Uh, Christian, take your own cue. And then he kept laughing, and I go, okay, cut. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, fortunately or unfortunately with this story, um, there weren't a lot of like laughing improv moments like that. It's a pretty dark story in a lot of ways, so uh, it, it wasn't too common. But that good eye—that was definitely an, an improvised moment. Yeah, it was no a great question. moment too. Alfonso, same same issue. I mean, you did already sort of t answer our question in terms of the pressure because you've got that killer guy going yeah, around. That's, that he doesn't leave. <laughs> I mean, he, he keeps on going to the cutting room and stuff. But in the cutting room, at least you can sort of control him. Um, the, no, that's the thing. I mean, in terms of the procedure, you know, uh, the whole thing of the logistics and stuff, you just know that you, you're, you're going to get through. You know, it's, it's, that is, I feel confident that, that somehow you're going to get through. For me, the anxiety and the stress has to do more from the creative standpoint. Making sure that what I'm doing and every moment that I'm doing, every scene that I'm doing, is conveying all the thematic elements of the film, mm -hmm. one way or the other, mm -hmm. in, in sometimes in subtle ways or not subtle ways. And, uh, and that is the, 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 the part that I could get a bit more anxious. I'm, I'm wanting a, a specific example. I'm wondering whether that scene, there's an amazing sequence, which they're in, I guess, the furniture store about to buy a crib. And then we know that the uh, Corpus Christi massacre stuff, well, the riots are happening outside. And the tie-in that you do with the camera to bring us to the window to see all of that violence on the street. Can you, I, I would have been really anxious setting up the shot, so I'm wondering how you, you would. You know, this has been, the, the, I, I feel blessed that, that um, First, I was trained as, a, as, a, as an AD, as a first AD. Right. And then I was, um, I had the lucky, I, I've been lucky enough to being able to work in several Hollywood productions with a lot of different elements. Yeah. You know, so you kind of start learning how to do stuff. Uh, the, here the, but the interesting thing here is that, um, except probably my AD crew that, uh, uh, he was highly experienced. My production designer and a couple of heads of department, my gaffer, and so on. Most of the crew was very young, you know, and, and they have not really done big films. And, uh, but this is, is the amazing thing of this thing of, of working together. You know, I remember when I started describing that scene, uh, we went to the furniture shop and I said, we're going to do this. 
did that idea occur because of the location? Did it well, no, the location is, is a real location. I mean, I wanted to shoot in the place where the action took place uh, almost 50 years ago. Uh, when I was a kid, I saw, uh, when I was a kid, one, one of the things that I got very uh, intrigued about this, this moment in, in history in Mexico came from a photograph in the newspaper that haunted me, that it was this student running away, being chased one by one of these paramilitary guys with a, with a stick. And this, this kid is just looking, with a long hair, is looking back at him. And in the background, you see this building where you see the furniture shop. And in the furniture shop, you see people looking down. And as a kid, my imagination was probably I, was, I would not be down there because I'm too young, but I could have been up there. And I could have been looking down, you know, and, and the idea of, of that was kind of very scary as a kid. And uh, so we decided to shoot in that place that now was a gymnasium. We have to, it was a whole logistic thing of negotiating with the gym, getting rid of the stuff, moving the gym to another location because they didn't want to go out of business. And you know, all the logistic thing. And, and that's what I'm saying. We, when I went there, we asked permission just to go, not knowing that we were going to empty the gym. And I was describing sort of what we were going to do because I, I didn't want to have clear preconceptions of everything. But I would say very likely it's going to be one shot in which they're going to come shopping and stuff and then we're going to go out of the window and there's going to be this, this riot going on. And it's when I, I realized the size of it. I, I was really going into this film, I thought I was doing, I kept on telling everyone, it's a small family film, <laughs> about, a film about a family. And it was not until I started describing the scenes um, to, to the production crew that started realizing the whole thing. And I realized that they started panicking. We had a production meeting. And it's, how do you do it? You know, you use one spoon at a time. You know, you use, uh, have to break down things see where are the problems, where are the issues, uh, where this, the, the, the evil killer may be hiding. And, um, and you know, like, so everybody starts doing their work. And it's amazing. Once that people get uh, the amazing role that they have, because the job in cinema is so specific, so many jobs, that if you take one job in its own, you would say, why, I mean, is it pointless? It's not pointless. What is amazing is when all these different people come together and create something. So what we did that is that, okay, we're going to block this avenue that is a huge access to downtown Mexico, uh, and we have to block it for two or three days. Uh, that was difficult, but was the whole logistic of making, you know, making the neighbors understand what we were doing. And when they heard that it was about this, we got a huge support from them. Oh. Then it was about, uh, okay, but you know, we have to have this already staged, what is going downstairs. We cannot stage the same day and block the, the whole traffic because we actually, when we shot, we created a chaos in the city. Um, so we, for several Sundays, we were rehearsing that scene in a football field, setting up a, a, a practicable at the, at the height where the camera was going to be, so we could see, you know, we, we could stage with a little bit more of detail. That I knew that I had to have perfectly well staged. 
the furniture shop, I didn't know how I was going to do it. I didn't want to know. Uh, because that was few actors, and I wanted to find surprises there. Uh, but the, the, the stuff outside, I, I completely block at first. So when we went there, um, you know, you just uh, start improvising with your actors on, on the thing. Uh, 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 like, and nobody had the screenplay, so the character of Cleo didn't know that Fermin, the, the ex-boyfriend of boyfriend, was walking in. So her reaction is the her reaction of looking at him. You know? So, um, and By the it way, was like you, that. I'm going to interrupt. When you have that moment, and this is probably true for all of you, when you have a moment where an actor doesn't know what's going to happen, like what you just said, Fermin suddenly comes there and Cleo sees him, what happens take two? Is there even a, a value of take two? In, in some instances, in that one is take one, the rea her reaction, because I could not reinvent. What I did in this film is that uh, they didn't have the, the screenplay. Each actor was given, I would give the dialogue to certain actors and instructions to others, but all of them contradicting. Even the dialogue that I would give, it, it would be not really the real dialogue for, to some of them. And I have different versions of that. And I have, the night before maybe, yes, I would try to figure, I was always trying to figure out new ways of, of, of creating these obstacles. Uh, an example, uh, I tell, in one scene I tell the, mo the mother, you have to focus on your older kids, so he writes a letter. And to the kid I go and say, uh, when your mom starts talking to you, you just leave the room. You know, so, so it's to see how she reacts and how she would. By the next take, I know that she's going to, she's going to know that he's going to leave. But then I tell another kid, when, when your, your brother leaves, you just leave as well. <laughs> you, you know, so you keep on adding and changing stuff. Here and there you repeat the take twice. And it's not, you, you realize that you have to refresh the whole thing. And this is the first time I've ever done it. That's right. I tend, my other films tend to be more controlled, more planned. Uh, the, uh, this is also the first film that you say in time. The paradigm that I took for this film is with, uh, with Chibo Lubezki, uh, the cinematographer, uh, and, and, and working with the, my ADs in, in the UK lately, we always talk about what is the biggest burden of, of, of filmmaking. And I'm sorry, you guys deal with time very well, but time, I hate the whole situation with time, mm -hmm. you know? Is that you always feel that you don't have enough time. And it's not only for the logistic things, it's time to explore, explore with your character, explore different things. And in this one, I decided that I was going to allow enough budget to get a long prep, a super long shoot, and a long post. So for me, that, except that, for instance, that location that I had to get rid of, I had to get out. And actually, because we recognized that we were disrupting so much, we were supposed to be three days. We were just only for two. Wow. You know, because, you know, it's just, there's a, a thing that is also a certain responsibility to a whole community, you know? I got it. Right, thank you. Pressure and time for you? When do you feel it? Well, I mean, I come from independent cinemas. We never had money. <laughs> My first film we shot in 12 days, July 1st, July 14th, two six-day weeks. Hmm. 
she's going to have it cost $175,000. So we didn't have time to bullshit. Had to get it done. Get it done. And people, to quote your great coach, Belichick, people got to do their job. <laughs> got to do the job. Let's go. And when, if ever, do you feel pressure and how do you deal with it? You, personally. Got to get it done. There's no, there's no other choice. So it's, is it easy? Does a day get harder I for you? I tell my students at NYU, there's no such thing as easy. But Professor Spike, it's, it's not easy. I say, so what? Easy, then you, if you're looking for this easy, this is the wrong profession. Mm. Well spoken. We hope you enjoyed listening to part one of this exclusive discussion. You can watch the full video of the Feature Film Symposium on our website at dga.org slash events. And be sure to download next week's episode, where our five feature film nominees will continue their discussion, tackling the casting process and going into detail with specific scenes from their films. Past episodes of The Director's Cut are available wherever you listen to podcasts, and be sure to click subscribe so you won't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. 